Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. Before we get into our uh, talk today, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Rob E., the Yellow Cake Advocate, at Economy Notes, Eric K., at Uges, Benjamin H., and at IMMPREM. George Glazier is with us today. George is Director, President, and CEO of Western Uranium and Vanadium, a U.S.-focused uranium explorer and developer advancing the Sunday Mine Project. The company is listed on a Canadian securities exchange under the symbol WUC, and also on the U.S. OTC markets under the symbol W-S-T-R-F. George, thank you for coming back to the show. My pleasure. So, George, let's get right to it. So, Section 232, when do you see that report and decision being released? Well, what Trump's done in the past, of course, he has not taken a great deal of time after he gets the recommendation from the Department of Commerce. So, I think we'll see within the next 30 days uh, a decision coming out of the White House. Excellent. And if 232 is successful, uh, how long do you think it'll really take, if if everything is successful and full with the petition, how long do you think it'll take U.S. producers to meet that 25% quota? Well, if it comes down to that, I, I think it would take three or four years to get to 25% of U.S. demand. If you take a look at current production capacity, developed, uh, permitted properties and, and projects, you know, you look at those, what's the production capacity there currently versus ones that could come on with additional capital permitting and, you know, obviously, you know, time to, to develop them. I think it's, you know, four years probably to get up to that. Maybe a little sooner, but I doubt it. You know, and most of the production in the U.S. has to come from conventional production. And we only have one fully permitted operational uranium mill in the United States. And, of course, that's owned by Energy Fuels. Now, are they going to allow non-owned properties in there? If they don't, the production capacity is very limited in the U.S. Uh, in the right. next four years until we could build a new mill. And that takes time, as you know. Right. Yeah, I think there's some interesting points there. And, uh, you know, uh, the time frame, four years, is, is probably likely. Um, but I think also another piece of that is how much capital really gets thrown at the sector and, and uh, the infrastructure. And that's a big question that really nobody can answer at this point. Mm-hmm. And so I think timing, uh, I think you're probably pretty close on your on your thoughts on the four-year figure. So on the 232, a little bit more, if there is a dual price, do you think, uh, international and, and a U.S. price, do you think utilities will be able to get better prices and deals to fill up their remaining 75% requirements outside of the U.S.? Or do you see price really normalizing around the incentive pricing in both markets, irrespective? No, I think what you're saying is there are going to be two-tier pricing for a while. I think there definitely will. You know, if a chunk of the U.S. market is reserved for U.S. producers, that's going to cut somebody out, you know, obviously. So to market that material, you know, into the U.S. utilities, you know, on the remaining, say, 75%, I think there's going to be a competition. And you know, now whether Cameco is involved, I doubt if Cameco is going to lower their expected price. You know, but the Kazakhs, if they want to market, and the Russians into here, probably are going to have to lower their price. I don't think the world price is going to 
come up to whatever the U.S. price is for a while until world consumption, you know, goes up. I mean, it could over four, five, six years, but not immediately. Okay. Well, I want to move on to something else. Uh, is there any interest at Western to look at and consider projects uh, outside of the U.S. during this uh, new uranium cycle, or is the focus kind of going to hang around in, in, in kind of the Utah and, and Colorado, New Mexico, Texas area? Well, in the short term, we'll stay in the U.S., and I'm not saying that there's no possibilities to go outside. You know, we like Canada. We like what's going on up there. Uh, certain areas we also like. Uh, but in the short term, you know, our goal is to get into production, acquire more properties in the U.S. Uh, for uranium and vanadium, and, you know, get into a cash flow position uh, before we start to acquire our properties. You know, I'm not saying we wouldn't if the right transaction came along. And we've looked at a number of things outside the U.S. Uh, we haven't acquired anything, but it's it's not beyond possibility, but it's probably not going to happen in the next year simply because we've got to stress production in the U.S. So Western just completed a 3.8 million Canadian uh, private placement. Did you participate in the placement and how will these funds be used to create shareholder value? Yeah, I was going to participate, but we were oversubscribed, obviously, uh, and we're still you know, oversubscribed. And so I did not participate. I was willing to participate, uh, certainly, but because we had such demand, and I've already got a large chunk of the Western stock, of course, as you know. Uh, the funds are going to be used, basically, you know, what we have announced is, is we're going to open up the Sunday mine. We've already started to locate the people and the equipment. Uh, we expect to have, within the next two weeks, that project underway. You know, it starts slow. But those funds are to go in and assess, you know, the, the very high-grade vanadium that we believe is in the, in the project that was never, you know, mined. Uh, and then send, send samples of that out to a number of customers around the world. So that's what we announced some time ago. And now we have the funds. That's exactly what we're going to do. And, of course, that also gets the mine ready for production under the 232 for uranium. So, again, I mean, it'll be two things. But we already know the uranium is in there. It's been, you know, part of it's defined, not all of it. There's only a small drill out uh, that Denison did for primarily for uranium. And that 43101 or 43101 was done on that. But we will be able to expand, you know, the resource certainly by what we're doing in the mine, underground drilling, maybe some surface drilling, but primarily underground drilling. Well, I want to talk about Sunday uh, here in just a moment, um, but I want to go back to uh, to this placement. And, and uh, you mentioned the, the shareholder quantity that you have as, as, a, as an owner. Along those lines of capital structure, you own a fair chunk of shares with which really reinforces your stake that you have in Western. Where does your ownership stand today in terms of percentage, and how much of those shares did you purchase, and how much were granted? All the shares that I have uh, were purchased. Well, you know, I basically, I purchased the assets from Energy Fuels and put them into the public company. So mine are all purchased. They weren't granted. I do have some options, but none of the options have been exercised. My options today are at higher price. And so all my shares have been basically purchased uh, by vending in my assets in the private company into the public company. Okay. And George, can you give us how much you have uh, percentage-wise right now, roughly with this new placement, and, and how many shares are actually outstanding after this placement? Uh, well, we had, you know, the exact numbers I'll have to pull up, but I have, probably have about 17% ownership. I have about 5 million shares. Okay. So let's go back to Sunday, uh, Vanadium. 
the sampling work. So for our audience who uh, maybe is not clear or needs to catch up, uh, can you walk us through that process that starts here in a couple of weeks? Give us kind of the start to finish and just walk us through and then give us the time frame uh, from sample taking and completion of the work and samples off to uh, to clients. Well, obviously, the first thing is is open the mine. We'll ventilate it. You know, the ventilation fans, we turn on electricity, we ventilate it, uh, do a few minor repairs, and then we bring in, you know, a, a, we've got a very experienced geologist coming on board. Actually, I hired him with Energy Fuels when I founded Energy Fuels. He's probably the most uh, experienced uranium uh, vanadium geologist in the U.S. And so he's coming on board. And we'll design the exploration or the program to define the high-grade vanadium that we believe was just bypassed when they mined it for primarily uranium in the past. And so he'll lay out a, a detailed program on how we assess the high-grade vanadium that we believe is in, in the mines. We'll open two mines to start with. There are five mines in the Sunday complex. So the first project will be to open two of them and go and, and do exactly that with that, that definition program. It's not exactly exploration because we know it was left there by everybody that worked in there and says we just bypassed it. So we'll go in and define that. Uh, we'll, we'll write a, a technical report on it. Uh, then we'll move into the additional mine. So the, the timing on that, it, it you know probably depends on first samples and when we're taking this. Be easy to take samples. We can take samples uh, within the next the first month now, one of the things they're going to do, the customers say, this is great stuff. How much do you have? How much can we count on? Can we get five or six million pounds over a number of years? So that's where you've got to define the quantity. But we will be sending out a number of samples of the high-grade vanadium uh, around the world so that they can test it for processing in their own facilities. That process, the first samples will probably go out within 30 days after we've got the miners in there because we will do some bulk uh, mining, not you know large quantities, but enough to take out a relative sample to to ship to the various customers. Okay. And then again, it takes how long for them to assess and do come back with us. But in the meantime, we will be doing the next stage, which is defining how much of the resource we have. So how about uh, uranium production at the Sunday mine? Uh, I, I don't think we have much for historical record on vanadium production, but back to uranium production at Sunday. Give us your thoughts on past production when Denison was operating there, and what do you see is really viable for production there when you bring operations online? How do we get to those million plus pounds per year at Sunday, uh, just kind of judging off what happened last time when Denison was there? Well, Den Denison, when they were last operating, had two contractors in there. One of them was operating two mines, and the other one was only into one of the mines. So three, three of the five mines were in operation when Denison was last producing from the mine. Uh, if you open all five mines at the same level Denison was producing, the, the, the three mines, there where you usually get to a million pounds a year, you know, because each mine easily could, could produce, you know, 200 to 250,000 pounds of uranium a year at, at the mining rates that Denison was operating at. And so the, the facility is capable of it as it was producing back in 2009. Uh, but again, it's opening all five mines, uh, and as you know, they were using contractors. Uh, they brought in contractor, brought in the equipment. We will, when we start mining, start with contractors because that way we minimize the capital. We don't have a great deal of mining equipment. We'll buy some minor equipment, you know, when we start this assessment program. But then, when you go into full-scale mining, 
that's where you need the production equipment. And, you know, that's costly equipment, and contractors charge a bit, obviously, more than we could do it if we directly operated. But again, I think for capital cost, we bring in contractors to operate those mines, and the contractors are available, ready to go to work, and they're experienced. There's the one that both of the two that did it for Denison are available today. And how do you see, what do you see on the vanadium side? Can you share with us any information on the vanadium side, assuming that uh, there's a client to buy material and you guys go in and, and get set up and, and start working the vanadium side of that? What do you see there? Well, yeah, obviously, if you go in and produce the vanadium, you know, as a separate commodity rather than the uranium, and, and mine at about the same rates. Now, the vanadium grades in the Sunday mine are five to six the uranium grades. And so if we're going to see that same kind of grade in the in kind of the non-uranium vanadium seams, you know, easily the thing could produce five or six million pounds of vanadium a year, assuming all six or five mines are operating. Uh, so, then, you know, again, that's what we're going to have to do some testing and, and, and see what kind of mining rates we could get. Uh, but, you know, just the same type of mining would be done as it was done in the past for the uranium, vanadium ore. So, again, we're looking at probably in that range of production for vanadium. Okay. And if you guys, so you guys will be going in there. So, for the audience who doesn't quite understand the uh, the process there, give us give us kind of the uh, the outline of, of what you're going to be doing. You're just going to be kind of stockpiling the uranium ore, or, or what are you going to be doing there? Well, if the vanadium ore that was bypassed had virtually no uranium. It might have very low-grade uranium, and that's why they didn't take it, all right? When Union Carbide was mining, they were mining primarily for uranium. Now, they did have a vanadium recovery, but if the vanadium grade was high and the uranium grade was very low or there was no uranium, they just left it. That's the, that's the primary source of the new vanadium we'll be going after. So whether it has a very low content of uranium or no uranium, that's the ore we would be primarily shipping. Now, we can ship uranium, vanadium ore a combination. You know, there's been some comment that you can't ship vanadium ore or uranium ore. You can ship uranium ore anywhere you want uh, in the world. You, know, you do have to get export license, but it's not a restricted commodity. You know, if you can ship yellow cake, which is the refined Uranium, which is shipped all over the world, you can certainly ship ore. But, you know, our first primarily, you know, we're going to look at that, that vanadium standalone. Because I'm talking to vanadium customers. Now, if you've got the uranium in the vanadium ore, there's a number of these vanadium customers that also could process the uranium. Uh, okay. You know, again, not all of them, but some of them already have the capacity to process the vanadium as well as the uranium. So the the uh, the thought process at this point really is uh, let someone else handle the the milling the milling of the material and you guys at this point the operation would just really consist of excavating the uh, the vanadium ore and then shipping that off so mm -hmm. so on site the the use of ablation at this point would would probably not be occurring out of the gate uh, kind of let's let's move to that for a moment tell us tell us about that for just a moment and and what your thought is on on how you guys are going to process well we would blade the vanadium ore. Yeah, we would upgrade it. It works on uranium and vanadium, so why wouldn't we? We would operate the, the ablation and upgrade the ore before we ship it. Because then you got a much higher uh, value product you're shipping. You ship it a long ways. You know, if you come out of there 2% vanadium ore as you mine it, you got so many pounds of vanadium per ton, 2% of the 2,000, versus if you are able to m remove a lot of the waste and, and uh, you know, basically have a higher grade material you ship and it's worth a lot more. Uh, the transportation issue, you know, is not nearly as critical when you have high value 
product come in a higher value product yeah and that makes sense because yeah, i think there was a little bit of confusion with, with some of the some of the folks out there that that uh maybe the ablation wasn't going to be used and it was just going to be just or just shipping the ore entirely so you guys are looking at uh using the ablation to upgrade and and uh get that higher higher grade ore out reducing your shipments and doing all that on site before you ship it so what else on on the ablation? So what else is needed from an agency standpoint to be able to use the technology for vanadium? And then also tell us what is required when the time comes for uranium. Uh, what is required there to be able to use the ablation uh, at the site? Well, for vanadium, we'll need a technical amendment to our mine permit. You know, we're working on a technical amendment to the permit to cover uh, the stockpile outside. I don't know if you're aware of that. That's public information. In fact, within the next few days, we'll submit the final technical amendment, which goes through the state. And that's in a process that we would do the same thing if we change what we do underground. Now, if we operate underground, you know, we'll just have to have a technical amendment. We won't change the surface operation at the Sunday mine at all. Now, if you were going to operate ablation on the surface, then you would have to go uh, change your plant operation. But our initial plan is to operate underground and not change the surface operation at all of the Sunday mine. Okay, and then on the uranium side? Well, the uranium side, you know, if we're primarily doing it for vanadium, we fall into the exception. You know, as I talk to people, you know, if you're primarily mining for something other than uranium, then you don't, you don't fall under mill licenses, clearly. You may have to get a source material license, but that's fairly easy to get according to our attorneys. So. We may, if we were doing a combination, may have to get a source material license, but we'll we'll cross that when we decide, you know, to mine and, and ablate uranium. We're not there yet, so right now we'll see what happens. Uranium prices are not high enough to justify mining uranium, but vanadium prices, even though they've fallen, could be you can justify mining that high-grade vanadium even at the today's price. It's come off considerably. Now, if vanadium drops down to five dollars a pound again, then it's probably not economical. Okay, so so give us a time frame just briefly on the on the uh, kind of setting that up. So so the the idea, the scenario is uh, that uh, you're underground, you're going after just vanadium only. You've got the ablation equipment set up underground. Give us give us kind of a time frame uh, from uh, when that might start to occur. Well, I would I would say. From the time we opened the mine, let's say we opened the mine mid-May, we got about six months of you know assessment, uh, sending samples out, and if it comes back and and we're able to get a contract that basically sets a you know a floor price, you know that we can rely on the economics work, then we can move into the mining stage. You know, take a bit of time. You know, probably 30 to 60 days to get a technical uh, amendment ready to go. Another. 30 to 60 days to get approved. So, you know, you're looking probably by the end of this year, we could be actually in production. You know, that's assuming that a couple of things, the vanadium market, you know, stays high enough and we can, we're not going to rely on the spot market. What if we decided to sell it at $12 around today's price? And by the time we produce it and ship it out and put in the money to start mining, what if the price dropped to five? So we do need a base price or at least a floor price contract for the vanadium. And that's that's no secret. It would be the same thing with uranium. You know, nobody's going to start, you know, even if the price of uranium goes up to 60 or 70 bucks, if they cannot get a contract, they're not going to put a lot of money into betting on the spot price. Uh, so, you know, those are there's, there's, there's the market considerations and, of course, you know, the timing. 
depends on these customers and, and how they feel about, you know, setting a base price. We'll have to watch the vanadium market. We've seen it fall, you know, from the highs of around 30 down to so one just a little above $12. So I'm watching the vanadium price carefully. We're still going to assess the high-grade vanadium, but whether we start mining it, it it's an it's a asset of the company and it should be defined. It'll create value, we believe, for the shareholders by defining it. Even because vanadium goes up and down, obviously, you know, it's if it goes back down, uh, you know, into the seven or eight dollars, you know, it's bound to go back up. I don't think the world can produce what it needs at those prices. You know, assessing the vanadium is going to add value to the company. Uh, producing it will add value, but we'll only produce when we can have positive cash flows. So let's assume we get a contract at a favorable price or maybe at a discount a little bit to where the current price is. Mm -hmm. And from there, you guys have some of the base ablation equipment. Would How much to get the going? One, the, one, the one ablation machine we have uh, is a commercial machine. But if you're into two of the mines, you need to have a, an ablation machine in each mine, in, in the mine. So you can see if we open all five, we need four more machines. Okay. I mean, and it's, it's pretty simple. You know, so it's your mining rate. One machine would handle one mine, but you're sure. going to have to have an ablation machine for each one of those mines. So as we move into production, we could move into production with only one. But then to get up to the production rates you and I were talking about, it's going to take obviously more machines, which we can build, you know, at a capital cost estimated by one of the fabricators that helped us with this one. You know, we can probably build the machines for four or five hundred thousand each. They're not terribly expensive. They're pumps and pipes and things like that. So if you're gonna if you're gonna start just kind of a, a starter operation with the one machine, uh, just give us just give us a ballpark. Give the audience kind of a figure of of where you guys think you would need uh, for capital to kind of just get off the ground with a one mine operation, just kind of starting up. Well, if if we were going to start the one mine, you know, the, the money we raise now will open it up. You know, we've got. Uh, you know, an estimate that we can do everything by a little bit of equipment, not going into production, of course, but, you know, with, with our existing machine, you know, for the capital we already raised. So we wouldn't have to raise any more capital. Now, to go into production, if we do it with a contractor, he brings his, his mining equipment. Uh, and so, you know, the capital cost to go into production with one mine is going to be covered under our opening, you know, with what we just raised. There's no more, virtually no more capital if you use a contractor. But to open one mine, you know, that's just a fifth of the production. You would need to probably open more mines to satisfy a vanadium customer. You know, if, sure. if one mine can produce a million pounds, a million pounds is not probably enough for a customer to be interested in. And most right. of these customers want more quantity, vanadium customers. They need it. They've got processing plants. And so the question is, yeah, maybe you start with one mine and start shipping at the million dollars or million pounds a year rate, but they want more from what we understand. So then you move into more more capital cost as you move, open more mines, but the capital cost is primarily, if you use contractors, it's primarily just build the additional ablation units. It looks like, aside from the little the sampling work there to kind of prove up the material, the vanadium, uh, it sounds like it really boils down to really just pinning down uh, a buyer at a, at the right price. Is there any other information on that at this point? Uh, are you are you still talking to some folks, or or can you give some information on that? 
Oh, yeah, we're talking to a number of people. You know, made contacts when we were up at the mining conference in Toronto. Uh, several contacts, uh, new contacts beyond what I'd already talked to at the uh, Alloy conference. It was you know, months ago. You know, and so again, we, we were delayed a bit, I think, by the, the markets, you know, the capital markets and you know, the stock market late last year was not too attractive. We waited a bit to raise this money. Uh, we couldn't do anything until we raised this money. But, you know, the interest is still there in a number of these people because there's still shortages of vanadium. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, the price has fallen, so, you know, it's, it's more imbalanced. But we're still talking to them and they're still anxious to get samples. Let's uh, let's move on. Uh, and one of the one of the other points too is I know that uh, you know Energy Fuels, of course, has produced out some some vanadium there, and they have some production that's that's hanging around. Uh, but yet we haven't seen anything as far as a deal to sell it yet. And so I'm sure the I think the market with uranium or with Energy Fuels is the shareholders are kind of waiting for that news to start come about, given their status uh, where they're at with that. And and yet there hasn't been any announcements on the sales side yet. So it'll be interesting to see who kind of gets to that point and, and who can make the deals. And on that, I want to also talk about another issue just briefly. Is there any update on the toll milling agreements? Uh, and, and what is the company thinking at this point on that subject? Uh, is it kind of a mute point and you guys are going to kind of move a, a different direction? Well, obviously, energy fuels can sell in the spot market. If, if they produce a couple hundred thousand pounds a month, you know, for a year or two, you know, they're only producing vanadium out of the, the waste, the mine water or the mill water. They're not going into primary production of vanadium, so they've got a somewhat limited quantity to sell. Uh, so they don't need a, they probably don't need a long-term contract. You know, they don't have the the commitment to start a mine uh, on the vanadium. You know, recovering it out of the, the tailings water is, is what they're doing or plan to do. And they've said they can do maybe 200,000 pounds a year, depending, or a month, depending on the, the market. I don't know what their cost is. They haven't told anybody what the cost of doing that is. But I assume it's fairly attractive, so they can probably to sell that into the spot market. They don't need a long-term contract, I, I, I would guess. Now, again, that's, you know, that what they're doing there is a little bit different than primary ore recovery. So, you know, I don't have any idea what the cost is because it has not been done at the mill before. This would be the first time. And I understand it's they've done it successfully, so I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's probably a good thing. So, again, I think, you know, they'll, they'll find a market for what they produce and probably just sell it in the spot market. And if the spot market goes down, I think they can start and stop that process very quickly. So they don't have a lot of commitment, you know, you know, to that. Uh, and it's a good thing for them. As far as toll milling, we haven't talked to them about toll milling lately. They've come out with announcements and said they're only going to mill their own ore. You know, if that remains their their position, I mean, they don't own the Sunday. So I guess it cuts the Sunday out. It cuts another all the numbers of others out, too. You know, so again, it's going to hamper the, the ability to produce uranium in the United States if they cut the mill off, uh, you know, and again, I think, I don't know if, if the 232 petition will require them to open it up to others, and it seems like it's almost antitrust if you give one company uh, a big chunk of the market, you know, it's a monopoly, you know, I, I would think that's antitrust under some of our laws, you know, I'm not an antitrust expert, but, you know, you don't think the utilities are going to jump on this and say, hold on. You've required us to buy a certain amount, and there's only one uranium mill in the United States. 
one company owns it. And if they don't open it up on reasonable commercial grounds, I'm not saying give it away. And they can make money and they're, they're far better off taking in toll ore and filling that mill. That mill will not be filled with their ore. And if you took a look at their last presentation that I saw that they handed out in Toronto, they admit what their production capacity is in the near term. They can't fill that mill. You know, they just don't have enough capacity. And so it's better, you know, I was with the company that built that mill, and we, we had toll milling contracts with a number of people because, you know, it's better to have a full mill and make, you know, a little less on a tolling contract than you do on your own ore, but it, you still make money. That makes money for the shareholders, and I, I believe they'll come around to that point uh, where they will mill for others. Once they start the mill, now they can say anything, oh, the mill's not operating, so... You know, they can say, no, we're not going to open it to anybody else because they're not operating. But once they start operating, they need to achieve the best economics. And the best economics are to run that mill constantly. It runs, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week once it's running. And it's better to toll for people. Uh, and, and there are other miners out there with small mines that you wouldn't toll. You would just buy their ore. This is the way, of course, Denison operated it that way in the past. And so did the first energy fuels that built that mill. And that's the ac economic way to operate that mill, is to, is to maximize production, whether it's your ore or whether it's somebody else's. Yeah, I think you made up a couple points uh, that, that are key there. Um, you know, first of all, it'll be interesting to see if they sell the Vanadium. They haven't yet, whether it's contracted or spot. We still haven't seen anything on that, at least uh, last I checked. And then on the other point, you made you made a mention of antitrust. You know, when, when you had the market downturn uh, last time, uh, after, you know, well, it was really building before Fukushima, but Fukushima really stuck the old knife in the heart. But a number of mills and so, so forth at that time were in a different status. Uh, you know, the Uranium One operations and, and uh, some of the ISR projects around the states. What's your thought on, on the fact that a number of these companies chose to let their assets fall into the status that they are in today, namely a number of mills, conventional and then also you have some of the ISR projects that really need some of the work to get going again. And there's not much there either, but there is a little bit, uh, you know, UEC's uh, Hobson and, and mm -hmm. of course, uh, UR Energy's uh, project. What's your thoughts on that? Do you think that uh, that Energy Fuels purposely put the uh, the market in this situation or did really everybody else kind of put themselves in the situation? What's your thought on that? Well, for conventional mills, bear in mind, the conventional mills in the United States were shut down and reclaimed a long time ago, way before Fukushima. All right. There hasn't been a new uranium mill built or operational in the United States for 30 years. So and from conventional standpoint, you know, they didn't do anything to, to cause this. I mean, they just happened to have the only operational uranium mill. Of course, the other two is one that the uranium one mill at, at Kickapoo. It, it's not operational, and it does not have an operating permit. Uh, I'm not saying it couldn't go into operation with capital and with time. And then, of course, the other is a Rio Tinto mill in Wyoming. You know, again, it could go into operation. Those are the, t the two other mills that are potentially in production within a number of years, but they're not ready to go now. They're not like like Mesa. So, you know, after Fukushima, people didn't shut down conventional mills. There weren't any left, <laughs> milling situation hasn't changed most of these mills were shut down after the price dropped after and it started dropping in 79 after three mile island if you'll recall and there was yep. there was probably there were probably 25 mills operating in the united states we were the largest uranium producer in the world producing over 40 million pounds a year 
you know, look at the number of major companies that were producing in New Mexico and Wyoming, uh, Colorado, Utah. There was a lot of per, uh, production, but basically the price went down, stayed down so long that finally these companies said, hey, we're just going to tear them down and reclaim them. The big oil sure. companies did it. The big mining companies did it. And the mills are gone. They're not there anymore. There are no mills in New Mexico. New Mexico used to be a major producer of uranium, a number of mills. They're not. Uh, and right. so the milling th situation has has got to change over a period of time if we're going to be a major producer again. We've got to build more mills, maybe not 25 mills, but you can't do it in one. Now, maybe we bring on the Sweetwater Mill. Maybe that comes on. That's in Wyoming. And maybe the Tickaboo Mill comes on. And maybe another new one comes on somewhere. But, you know, you can produce enough uranium. White Mesa claims they've got the capacity of, I don't know what they say, six or seven million pounds of mill capacity. And that's probably true. But they don't have the mine capacity now to do that. Now, eventually, with their resource base, given time and money, they could probably fill the mill up with their own ore. But time and money doesn't mean it can be done now. Sure. So what you're looking at, and the ISR, you know, sure, UEC can come on, UR Energy, uh, you know, there's production that can come on. But, you know, if you take a look at the total capacity of that that is really there in the short term, it's probably a couple million pounds a year. Right. You know, you know go, go look at what it produced in the past. That's a good indication of what it can produce in, in the near future. Sure. And I, I just I just was, you know, I'm, I'm skeptical that it can get the nameplate quickly. And obviously you mentioned that there's a there's a, a production, a supply issue getting to the mill as well. And so it's it's all speculative as far as where they can reach on their on their production rates and if they can get to capacity quickly or, or if they have issues there that, that are unknown, that, that are unforeseen at this point. But mm -hmm. I think my what I was getting at to George was the fact that I, I don't see that it was purposeful that uh, and you know because you were part of it and Steve Antony was there as well I don't know that yeah. keeping the license there and keeping that project in good shape or the mill in good shape I don't know that it was purposeful to corner the market in a way that was in an antitrust type fashion um, of course and so not. that's looking at because the price the price of the market caused things to fall apart in the states it wasn't anything that uh, one group tried to do over a 10-year period and so I I, I hear that a little bit, and I, I just kind of think that, you know, look, there is there is Apple out there, there is a Microsoft, there is a McDonald's, there is a Burger King, there's a Coke and a Pepsi, and there's ISR and there's conventional. And for me, uh, I just see it as, you know what, there is still choice. It's not like everybody's forcing Microsoft Windows down your throat, at least not yet. Well, and, and, that, and that's exactly true, but if they put a quota on a certain amount, it's got to be produced somewhere. And if it's a very near-term quota, look at the production capacity of ISR. It cannot fill, you know, much more than what it's done in, the, say, the past 10 years. You know, look at the production of those things, you know, and, right. and see what they can do. And it's not like the utility say, oh, okay, we can go to ISR. But you can't step up ISR overnight either. There's permits. There's development. Even without going to conventional, there is only a limited number of ISR things that work in the U.S. Not everything works for ISR. I mean, it's got to be right geologic. You know, there's a number of things about it, you know. Take a look at Peninsula. Peninsula is a good project up there that didn't work with their planned, remember? I mean, that's why they're trying to change it to basically an acid leach. You know, that's a good project, but it didn't work because the geology, uh, you know, I'm not an ISR expert, but I just, you know, what I read, what I hear from people, you know, it just wouldn't work you know, in the way they do typically those in the U.S. So now if they can change to, 
you know, an acid leach, basically, it'll work better. Now, whether it works up to the standard they thought it would, I don't know. But again, not everything sure. works on ISR. And so how many deposits do we have in the U.S. that are ISR, you know, capable? And it, it, in my guess, you know, and again, this is not, you know, I would say 70% of the U.S. reserves or resources or in the ground uranium cannot be mined with ISR. It has to be conventional just because of the geology. Right. Uh, you know, and so I'd say if, if we've got, we've got a nice resource base in the United States. When I say resource, I just use that not under the SEC standards, but just uranium that's pretty well known in the ground. We don't know the cost of it. But the U.S. contains a lot of uranium, but most of it is has to be conventionally recovered sure. and to be dependent on, on, you know, there are ISR deposits and they'll discover more, but it's just the nature of the uranium and to, for ISR recovery. It has to be in a certain setting and you, you probably know that. And most of yeah. the you know people that follow these know a little bit about the technical aspects of ISR. So, so I'm not telling them new things. I'm just repeating what I know about it. And so, yeah, I just think that you're going to need capital and some expertise to really get up to that uh, that real production levels that uh, could be needed uh, under under a full maximum uh, positive outcome of a, of a 232 petition. And so I think that uh, yeah. you're just going to need a bunch of capital injection to really get things going yeah. and, and obviously a few brains uh, to get some of the stuff done on the ground and mm -hmm. expertise to get it there and get it to the market. So I want to ask you on. An, I want to move to another subject. Uh, I just want to come back for a moment to Pinion Ridge. I think there's a little bit of audience out there that's still a little bit confused on Pinion Ridge. Can you just just briefly give us the status there and clarify for the audience the ownership of that project? Well, the ownership of Pinion Ridge, the mill itself, uh, is is in a company that's owned by four individuals. Okay, four individuals own 100% of Pinion Ridge. And I'm not one of them, okay? And I gave up my interest. I was a 50% owner of it. Uh, but because of the conflict, potentially, you know, with Western and Pinion Ridge, I, I'm no longer the owner of that 50%. So four individuals own the asset. And the license has been revoked. You know, the state of Colorado revoked the license what, a year ago, maybe a little over that. And so there is no license for a mill there anymore. Uh, do you want to continue? Do these individuals or anybody else want to continue to try to license or re, you know do that license again? You know I don't know. Uh, it was revoked in my opinion. You know on minor grounds. That in my opinion it sh it shouldn't have been revoked. It sh we should have had another hearing to correct any minor deficiencies in the license. And when the state decided not to give uh, Pinion Ridge Mill applicants a, a chance to have one more hearing, as the court said, absent another hearing, the license should be revoked. And they relied on it. He didn't say it had to have a hearing. So they said, we're revoking the license. And they said, basically, start over. And at that point, you have to decide it's, whether it's worth starting over. I, I, I don't know whether it'll ever be done. My, you know, tell you the truth, if I were to do it again, I wouldn't do it in Colorado. I've made that statement to a number of people. Why don't we go to a, a state that's more, you know, you know, accepts it, wants the economic development. You know, uranium mills are no more environmentally unfriendly than a lot of other mining projects. But people don't understand it, and of course, why, why do it? You know, so if I were to build another uranium mill, I wouldn't go to Colorado, my opinion. Okay. So okay. again, the Pinion Ridge mill is not... I have nothing to do with it, but again, you know, whether anybody else does something with it, it's up to them. 
right now it's kind of an expensive uh, wildlife reserve or maybe uh, yeah. uh, maybe a rental hunting ground or perhaps maybe a kind <laughs> of a firing range or something like that. <laughs> all, all of the above. Okay. So uh, let's let's move on. So uh, why should investors be taking a stake in Western uranium today after the capital raise where you guys are today and, and the status that you guys are about to embark on the sampling and, and work there at Sunday? What would you say to potential investors? Well, you know, I think the value of this company is both uranium and vanadium. In the near term, it's probably vanadium because if we're able to define a significant resource of vanadium that we can start shipping in the near term, we're not dependent on what happens with uranium. Now, whether it's 232 relief or not, you know, uranium prices are probably going to recover in the next four or five years if you look at everybody that looks at the details. Maybe it doesn't get up to $70, but it gets up to the point where we will have some U.S. production, I believe, uh, in, in, a, in a world market. But what you need to look at is we're two commodities. We've got the uranium and the vanadium, and the vanadium could very well support the company until the world price of uranium you know, recovers. Now, maybe 232 gives the U.S. production some relief in the, in the near term. That's, that's a plus, definitely a plus for anybody that has U.S. uranium, including us. So, again, you know, if you're, if you're counting on 232, if you've only got uranium, you know, if that doesn't go through, then these companies are going to have to wait a number of years. And I guess that's what the petition says. We can't, we can't last that long, okay, whether it's four or five or six years. They're basically saying you've got to give us relief now because we can't last. And that's what Energy Fuels has said. Now, you are energy, same thing. So, you know, look at our company. And, and with the potential for the vanadium, we think that is our survival until uranium comes back. If you don't get 232 relief, if you get 232 relief, then uranium is, is the commodity that could very well drive this company as well as other companies. So, you know, again, I tell shareholders, you know, it's a, it's a value. You know, we've, we've got good resources. We've got permitted mines. We're probably, you know, everybody, everybody company says they're undervalued. So you look at it and see what our current market cap is versus what it could be. You know, investors invest for one reason, and that's to make money. I've learned that over the years. They're not interested in anything else except making money. If, if there's a way that they see the value of these shares go up, that's how they make money. And, of course, you know, if you're already fully valued, then maybe you don't make much. So you take a look at the value of the companies and all of these companies, what their asset base is, what their near-term capacity is, and potentially whether they would be an acquisition target in the fairly near, near term. And obviously, that's one way you can cash out and, and create shareholder value. You know, and I'm not opposed to selling this company for the right price and to the right company. And that's certainly something that I would look at as a major shareholder. I would not hold it up. Some people say, well, I own 20%. I don't want to sell this company, and I can stop the sale. That's not me. You know, if, if this company can be sold for the right price, I'll be the first one to, to support that. And I think a lot of shareholders have asked me that, and I'm not one that's going to say, no, I'm in this for the next 10 years just because I want to be a uranium producer. So that's what I tell people, and I think, you know, you, you make your own decision on, on whether the value of these shares go up. It, all mining is risky. Commodities are risky. And that's why the investors in this, you know, in, in mining and in commodities, they make money sometimes and they lose money. But in overall, hopefully they make money. And they take multiple bets. You know, they don't just put all their money into one company or one commodity. Wise commodity investors have a 
basket of commodities and a basket of companies. And I think we're one of those that could be potentially, you know, in their basket. Very well. So, George, uh, where is Western going to be over the next, say, six months uh, as far as uh, conferences, et cetera? What's, what's the status on that side? And then how can investors reach out to the company for more information? Well, we're, the next one scheduled is, is a small conference. It's held. Um, That's the John Tumazo's very independent research conference in New Jersey. Uh, we're, towards the end of June, uh, we're going to have our our annual general meeting in New York City, I think it's the 22nd of June. Uh, don't have anything scheduled in May because I will be tied up with the opening of the mine. I did not want to be traveling because I will be personally supervising all of the activities to open this mine. So I've, I've left my schedule open during May, start again in June uh, with the conference in New Jersey and then our AGM and then, you know, whatever. Summertime is just a little slower. Uh, we'll go out our strong starting in September, certainly. And uh, yeah, well, we're looking forward to seeing some photos and, and uh, some information coming out of uh, on the ground uh, operations there. One other question, uh, George, if there's anything like else you'd like to add before we go, but I wanted to ask you what your favorite evening cocktail is. <laughs> well, it depends on the evening of the week. I drink beer, I drink martinis, <laughs> drink wine, a number of things. You know. In the winter, I drink Jack Daniels. In the summer, I drink gin. <laughs> no, I appreciate the chance to talk to you and your your company and the people that follow you. You do a great job. Thank you. Okay. Well, George, I appreciate it, and uh, thanks for taking the time today to come on. Good. Thank you.